0: I want you to suspend reality for a moment and imagine that you're an Israelite in first century Palestine. Thirty-three years prior, you met a shepherd who told you about something remarkable that happened to him one night as he was tending sheep outside the city of Bethlehem, the ancient hometown of King David. As the shepherd tells it, thousands of angels penetrated the darkness that night proclaiming the birth of the Messiah, the delivering king that Israel had anticipated for thousands of years. Only as the shepherd tells it, the angels said that the the baby born that night is also Savior and the Lord, titles reserved exclusively for God in the Old Testament. At that time, you thought the shepherd had lost his marbles, (laughs) but he was crazy. You thought to yourself, there's just no way. But then years later, you caught wind of something remarkable happening in the north in Galilee. Apparently, a man called Jesus from the tiny town of Nazareth was doing mighty works of healing. It was said that this Jesus could merely speak a word from his mouth to give a command and things like tremendous sickness and suffering were put in reverse in people's lives. The deaf and the blind and the mute and the lame were miraculously and completely healed. Crazy story. You heard that Jesus took a paltry lunch of a young boy and turned it into a feast for thousands on a hillside in Israel. Most recently, rumors were floating around that that Jesus had resurrected a man who had been dead for four days in the little town of Bethany outside Jerusalem. And that's not even to mention Jesus' teaching. People said around you that he taught with a unique God-given authority. He interpreted the Old Testament in an unprecedented way, yet one that made complete sense. His central message, as you heard it, was that the kingdom reign of God himself had finally come, and through him. It's crazy. Jesus called everyone to repent of their sins and trust in this good news and follow him by faith. Lots of people around you were speculating that this Jesus might finally be the one to overthrow Rome's oppression. But in your opinion, it sure seemed like he had come for an entirely different reason. He did things that only God could do. He said things that only God had the right to say. Maybe the shepherds weren't so crazy after all. No, it couldn't be. The Christ is just the son of David, right? Turning your Bibles to Matthew 22. Matthew 22, it's on page 828. Friends, if you didn't arrive at our gathering with a Bible this morning, there's a Bible underneath your seat. Take it, turn to page 828. We're going to be in Matthew 22. Today we have landed on a passage in our series in Matthew's Gospel on a text that answers this very question that I just asked in that imaginary situation. It says, Christmassy, (laughs) a passage as you can get without preaching one of the narratives about Jesus' birth, it answers the question, who is Jesus of Nazareth? Who did Jesus understand himself to be? It's one thing for others to come to conclusions about Jesus, but what did Jesus think about his own identity? Did he understand himself to be Israel's Messiah? If so... Did he think of himself as merely a king? Or did he know himself to be quite more than that? And what does all this mean about how you and I ought to respond to Jesus? Let's read together, starting in verse 41 of Matthew 22. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, what do you think about the Christ, whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. After responding, friends, to a series of bad faith questions and riddles from the religious leaders to discredit him, Jesus finally turns the tables on them in the passage we just read. Did you see that? The question that Jesus asks makes him the questioner, makes him the interrogator. It's like the interrogated becomes the interrogator. One commentator said, in a day full of questions, Jesus asked the question of the day. If David calls the Messiah Lord, how is he his son? Jesus' question provoked the Pharisees to consider who he claimed to be to stretch beyond the limits of their understanding and grapple with who he really is. Friends, this is what Jesus would have for you this morning as well, to take him at his word about who he is and to respond appropriately to what you discover. You know, friends, this is the time in the sermon when I typically give you the big idea of the passage that I hope will be the big main idea of the sermon. Well, today I'm going to withhold it, okay? I'm going to withhold that main idea until the end I'm simply going to explain the text, and then I'm going to give you two big takeaways from it, and the second of those two takeaways will be the main idea. Okay? Sound good? Let's dig in together. Look at verse 41. Verse 41 again. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? My well, friends, remember, that the word Christ, so familiar in our Christian lingo, is not Jesus' last name, okay? It's not the equivalent of Diedrich or Johnson or Jones. Christ is a title that means anointed one. It's the Greek translation of the Hebrew title, Messiah. Jesus is asking the Pharisees their thoughts about the lineage of the Jewish Messiah, the king God promised in the Old Testament. God promised in the Old Testament scripture that this coming king would deliver Israel from her enemies and establish God's kingdom upon the earth. Whose son is this Christ? It's not a trick question, right? Jesus is lobbing a soft toss right down the middle of the plate that any good Israelite could have swatted out of the park. They said to him, verse 42, the son of David. It's the exact right answer a thousand years before Jesus walked the earth. God promised Israel's greatest king, King David, that one of David's future descendants would reign with a kingdom that would last forever. We read this portion of the scripture earlier in the service from 2 Samuel 7. We call this section of scripture, this great promise, the Davidic covenant, God's covenant promise to David. And friends, from that time on, this Great promise of God functions like a golden thread that weaves its way throughout the rest of the Old Testament. It became the great hope of God's people as the Scripture and the Psalms and in the prophets echo and expound God's great promise of the coming King. Later scriptures make clear that God's covenant with David was simply the continuation of his redemption promises that he had made throughout history, promises that began immediately after Adam's fall in the very beginning. It would be the Davidic Messiah who would crush Satan and reverse the curse as God promised to Adam and Eve in the garden. It would be the Davidic king who would be the one to bring blessing to the nations as promised to Abraham and to his offspring. We read of this great promise this morning in Isaiah nine, in which Isaiah promised that a future child would fulfill this promise to David. Did you hear that promise when we read Isaiah nine? Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time and forevermore. Friends, this, this hope crackles through other scriptures as well. like. Isaiah 11:1, Jeremiah 23:5 which we read, which picture the Messiah as the as a branch that shoots off from the family tree of King David. Love the the scriptures we looked at this morning are just a small sampling of the dozens of scriptures over the course of millennia that echo God's promise to send the coming king from the Psalms to Isaiah, from Jeremiah to Ezekiel, from Hosea to Zechariah, they all echo the refrain. The king from David's line is coming to save his people. He's coming to, in fact, to set everything right, not only for you, Israel, but for the entire world. Friends, the tragic irony of the Pharisees' response is that they nailed the answer to Jesus' question about the lineage of the Christ. God had indeed promised he would be a son of David. But they were blind to the fact that the man standing before them was he. Israel's leaders looked for political deliverance from their subjugation to the Roman Empire. They had completely missed the fact that God promised something far more than the release from Rome's tyranny. God promised to release from the tyrants that dominated every human who had ever walked this planet, the dark lords of sin and judgment and death. Israel looked for a conquering warrior to rescue them, oblivious to the fact that this conqueror they hoped for would be a humble servant who would suffer and die for their sins to bring us back to God. The Pharisees gave the right answer while looking for the wrong king. They rightly identified the Messiah's lineage while wrongly identifying Jesus. That's why Jesus asked his second set of questions beginning in verse 43. He's leading them to consider that this son of David for whom they waited was much, much more than a human king. Look at verse 43. Verse 43 He said to them, How is it then that David. In the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Friends, once again, what Jesus is doing is showing that the, the, she's showing the Pharisees that their assumptions about the Messiah were entirely inadequate. And not just that, he exposes the inadequacy of their thinking from the Old Testament, which all of them studied and revered. And not just from the Old Testament, but from the words of King David himself. I mean, if that's not like a checkmate move, I don't know what is from Jesus. Jesus said, if the Messiah is merely David's son, how do you then explain what David says of him in Psalm 110? Psalm 110.1 is the verse in quotations there in verse 44. So I think to understand Jesus' argument, we need to look together That's Psalm 110. So turn there in your scriptures. It's in your worship guide, but I would encourage you to open your copy of the scripture to Psalm 110. It's on page 509 of the Black Bible in front of you. Psalm 110. Friends, believe it or not, you are turning right now to the favorite psalm of the New Testament authors. Guess which psalm is quoted more than any other psalm in the New Testament? That's right, Psalm 110 it's referenced 33 times in the pages of the New Testament. Jesus' teaching here became foundational for the apostles' understanding of who Jesus is and what he came to do, what he's currently even doing right now at this very moment as we meet here. Before we read, I want you to answer this question, okay? Let's think together. How is Jesus so confident that David wrote the words of Psalm 110? Okay, he quotes Psalm 110 as words from the pen of David. How does he know that David is the author? Is your Bible open? Look at the heading right above the psalm. We call that the superscription. What does it say? A psalm of David. Beloved, this is the primary reason that we understand the, the superscriptions of, of, the, of the Psalms to be part of God's word. It's not They're not like an optional addendum to the scripture. Jesus agrees with the heading. The Psalm is written by David. And what does King David write in this Psalm? The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. At first glance, this verse sounds like gibberish, right? The Lord says to my Lord? Like, what in the world? It kind of sounds like, you know, the the boss says to my boss. The president says to my president. It makes no sense when you're just going to read it out loud. But friends, this is where we need to look carefully at the biblical text. Notice that the first instance of Lord is in all caps, like every single letter. And the second isn't. You see that? Anytime you see the word Lord with each letter in all caps in the Old Testament, the translators of your English Bible are flagging for you the translation of God's personal covenant name, Yahweh. It's the name by which he identifies himself as Israel's sovereign covenant Lord. The second word translated Lord in Psalm 110.1 is not in all caps, is it? it's translated from the Hebrew word Adonai, which is a more generic word for Lord, someone in authority. So if you were to read the original Hebrew, it literally says, Yahweh says to my Adonai. In other words, David writes, the Lord of heaven and earth says to my Lord, my master, sit at my right hand. Psalm 110 was a, coronation psalm. It was often sung at the coronation of Israel's kings. But God's people had long recognized it to look forward and hope to the coming of the king, par excellence, the Messiah. Are you starting to see why Jesus quotes this psalm to the Pharisees? He's presenting to them a dilemma that they had never considered before. If the Messiah is merely a human king, just merely the son of David, and why, in Psalm 110, does David call his future son, my Lord? That's how Jesus follows up to them in verse 45, isn't it? If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Friends, what was true in ancient Israel is true today. Fathers don't normally call their sons or their grandsons or their great-great-great-great-great-grandsons Lord. The other night my son Cooper had a major life achievement. He tied me in eighteen holes of mini golf. Friends, despite the humiliation of me playing to the level and putt putt of my seven year old son, the roles of authority in my home did not change. Dad, can I say stay up past my bedtime tonight? Oh, yes, my Lord. Hey, can I eat all the candy in the the pantry? Well, of course, my Lord, as you wish, my Lord. No way, no way. I'm still in charge. No human father calls his son Lord unless there is something utterly unique about that son. That is what Jesus is pressing home here. David calls his future son his sovereign, his master. Why? The answer is in Psalm 110 itself, and it speaks of whom David understood his future descendant to be. Look at Psalm 110 one more time. I'm going to paraphrase it to help us with the interpretation, okay? Verse 1, the Lord God says to my Lord, the coming Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Friends, to sit at any king's right hand is to share the throne with him. And here, the creator of the galaxies, the covenant Lord of Israel, is beckoning the Messiah to share his rule. He's placing him on the throne of the universe right next to him. In fact, if you were to keep reading in Psalm 110, you'd see that in this psalm, the Messiah and Yahweh are essentially interchangeable. For instance, look at verse 4. Verse 4, there Yahweh grants the Messiah an eternal priesthood. It's mind-blowing. The author of Hebrews picks this part of Psalm 110 up in his description of Jesus Christ as our great high priest seated at the right hand of the Father, ever living to make intercession for his people. The reason the New Testament authors love Psalm 110 so much is they recognize that Jesus' resurrection from the dead and his ascension to heaven directly fulfill Psalm 110's prediction that the Messiah King would be enthroned at God's right hand after defeating all his enemies. They understood that this is what happened by virtue of Jesus' death and resurrection. Look at verse 5. Verse 5. It's not just that the Messiah, who is said to reign at God's right hand, God is said to be at the Messiah's right hand. You see that? It's almost like the Messiah stands in in this psalm for God himself. See, friends, in asking the Pharisees the question if then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Jesus is not denying the ancestry of the Messiah. No, this is is his eloquent, biblically rich way of declaring that the identity of the Christ is far more than these Pharisees had ever bargained for. David's words in Psalm 110 only make sense if the Messiah is not just David's son, but God's son. David calls his future descendant son Excuse me, David calls his future descendant son his Lord because that son is co-equal with the Lord, Yahweh himself. Don't be satisfied, Pharisees, as if Jesus says, with hoping for mere human political rulers to come. Look at the man standing in front of you. Look at me and see your God. Friends, the religious leaders ask Jesus question after question after question to trap him. And every one of those questions that we've looked at over the last few weeks showed that they had missed the point. They asked him about things like taxes. Talking about taxes, man. Marriage and the resurrection. Jesus arrests their attention on what really matters. What really matters is who he is and why he came. That's the gist of what Jesus is saying. Now, what can we take away from it this morning? Number one, number one, you can trust what the Bible says about Jesus. And by the way, everything else. You can trust what the Bible says about Jesus Christ. Did you notice how Jesus talked about who wrote Psalm 110? He adds a phrase in the middle of the sentence in verse 43 that is, earth-shattering for how we understand the Bible. Look at verse 43. How is it then that David in the Spirit, or by the Spirit, calls him Lord? In other words, Jesus understood the reason that David could prophesy about his future descendant was because the Holy Spirit, the third person of the eternal Trinity, was superintending the entire thing. Beloved, Scripture testifies that it is God's word written through the the agency of human authors. The theological term that we use to describe this relationship between God and the human authors is called inspiration. The inspiration of Scripture. You know, when we use that word inspiration in modern English, we're usually talking about something that inspires us, right? Something that motivates us. When we talk about the inspiration of the scripture, we don't mean that Matthew or David saw a beautiful sunrise over Israel and were inspired to write the scripture. That's not what we're talking about. What we mean by this term is simply this. When scripture speaks, God speaks. This is what Jesus believed about the words that David the king wrote. When David's scripture speaks, God speaks. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is breathed out. It's exhaled. It's inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Friends, the biblical authors like David, like Matthew, they each wrote freely with their own unique personality, their own unique style, their own experiences and perspective. David's words, Matthew's words are genuinely their own words. God did not dictate every word to them like if they were like some, you know, author robot or put them into a trance to control their pen without their knowledge, not their consent, not at all. What scripture affirms is that the biblical authors writing freely were carried along, 2 Peter one twenty-one. they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit did not work around the human authors. He worked through the human authors. So that David and Matthew and Paul and all the rest, what they wrote was ultimately not their word alone, but the breathed out word of the living God. And if that's true, if the Bible is the word of God, then all that it speaks to, friends, is true. Without error. It's utterly trustworthy. And as God's word, it's sufficient for all matters of your faith and your, your practice as you live in God's world. Friends, if what this means for you today is this if you tonight were to hear the audible voice of God thundering from heaven, that word would be no more authoritative over your life than what is written down in the pages of sacred scripture. Where Scripture speaks, God speaks. it's because the Bible is God's word, your conscience must be bound to it. You submit your thoughts and your presuppositions and your desires and your goals and your motivations and your words and your actions. You submit them to the words of God. You don't stand over the Bible as if you know best. You let the Bible stand over you because God knows best. Say, John, how can I really trust that the Bible is God's word? I mean, lots of scholars and theologians have questions, questioned and, and, you know, they've they've been skeptical skeptical about things in the Bible. Even things like David's authorship of Psalm 110 is debated, let alone the supernatural stuff with the miracles and things like that. Friends, I get it. But if you're asking whether I believe the words of skeptics and scholars or the, one, or the words of the one who would walk out of his tomb on the third day, I'm going to take the words of the one who rose from the dead each and every time, any day of the week. Look how tenaciously committed to the Scripture Jesus was. In Matthew 22 alone, just let your eyes scan over the page. The Pharisees and Herodians try to trip him up about loyalty to Caesar. And so Jesus takes them back to Genesis 1 in the image of God. The Sadducees try to embarrass him about his view of the future resurrection. And so Jesus appeals to Exodus 3 and the living God of the patriarchs. The Pharisees, again, ask him about the greatest commandment. Jesus takes them straight to Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19 to highlight love for God and love for neighbor. And now when Jesus pivots to prove his own identity, he picks up these ancient words of Psalm 110 and says, David, by the Spirit, says that the Messiah is far more than a mere king. He's equal with God himself. How could David write 1,000 years before Jesus walked the earth? How could he write with precision a millennia before Christ? Because that very Scripture wasn't just David's words. It was the divine word. Beloved, although 66 books are within the Bible, it's really just one book. Although there are over 40 human authors, there is really just one. Author. Although there are many subjects in the scripture, there is really just one subject, one overarching story. The subject is Jesus Christ, and the story is all about him. The thousands of promises and patterns and prophecies in the Old Testament are all flawlessly and finally fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus the Christ. Friends, if you're here this morning and you consider yourself a a bit of a skeptic about the Christian scripture, let me just encourage you, take time in 2024 to read the Bible for yourself. Don't just listen to what other people say about the scripture. Don't just listen to the the talking points on on pop television, pop culture and pop culture and on television. And don't just step back and take pot shots at the Bible and at Christianity from afar. Have the courage to read the Bible for yourself. Don't just read an isolated verse here or there, friend. Let me encourage you about that. Take time to read one of the Gospels completely. One of the Gospels, the eyewitness memoirs that tell about the life and the ministry, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Read one completely straight through. I think what you'll find if you'll read humbly and even prayerfully is that the Bible is not only self-attesting in its source and authority, it's self-authenticating in its truthfulness and power. It proves the case because the Spirit of God stands behind it. It bears witness for itself that it is indeed God's Word. And so the Christ, it reveals, must be worshiped and embraced by faith. I've read several stories recently about former atheists who are now devout Christians, all because they simply engaged honestly with the Christian scripture. And I hope you'll do that this next year if you're one of those skeptics. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let me ask you, how central is the Bible to your life? Do you believe not just in theory, but actually in practice in your life that when The Scripture speaks, God speaks. Because you don't need a special word from the Lord. You don't need a word from the Lord. You have it. Do you open your Bible regularly so that you might hear God speak to you? So that you might know and worship Christ more fully? You know, maybe one application on this Christmas Eve is, is to make sure that the Bible's message about the advent of Jesus is at the very center of your celebration of Christmas. I never want to bind consciences in our congregation where the Bible leaves freedom. But let me just say this. It is hard to imagine a Christian celebration of Christmas without Christ, through His Word, permeating the celebration. You said, John, well, how do I do that? Well, I'm sure there are several ways, but perhaps tonight, friend, on Christmas Eve, you take time to read one of the accounts about Jesus' birth. It's hard to keep the kids away from presents on Christmas morning, right? Okay, who would want to do that anyway? Uh, we'd be bad parents, I guess, if we did that. But perhaps tonight, you simply open the book written by the author, and you read with wonder and with worship about the Savior's birth. You take time as an individual or as a family in the word to thank God for his inexpressible gift. Here's the second takeaway from the passage that, and I, what I think is the main idea. Here's the main idea of Matthew twenty-two, forty-one 41 to 46. It's not enough to be half right about Jesus you must embrace all he reveals himself to be. It's not enough to be partially right about this king. You must embrace all that he says about himself, all he reveals himself to be. I want you to imagine it's Christmas morning. You're ready to unwrap an exquisitely wrapped gift. Obviously, it's from a woman in your life if it's exquisitely wrapped. Men just do gift bags. I thought I'd get more chuckles on that. Am I the only one who just does gift bags? I guess I am. You've been waiting on pins and needles all month to open this beautiful present. You tear it open. You rip apart that exquisite wrapping. And to your surprise, it's a jigsaw puzzle. One with a thousand tiny little pieces. One of those weird people who asked for a jigsaw puzzle. You're excited to put it together, but once you open the box, it looks like not all the pieces are there. Undeterred, you start assembling the puzzle with the pieces you have. As you connect them, you notice that you were right. Something is off. It looks like a scene, but there are missing gaps, and some pieces don't quite fit. After all the waiting and all the work, the picture is incomplete the Pharisees got Jesus' first question about the Messiah's lineage exactly right. They knew he was to be the son of David. If Jesus that day had walked them through his family tree like we see in Matthew 1, they probably would have agreed, yeah, you're a descendant of of the king. We'll give you that. But their spiritual blindness... Mixed with their wrong assumptions, kept them from understanding that the Messiah wasn't to be merely a human king, but the divine son of God. David's son, yet David's Lord. Their picture of the Messiah was horrifically incomplete. Friends, just pull out your worship guide again, and I want us to look briefly at the scriptures that we read earlier that foretell and announce the Christ. Let's see what these Pharisees had missed. Isaiah 9.6, it's a prophecy 700 years before Christ. Look at what the child king who will bear the government of the universe upon his shoulder is called. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Prince, no, no mere human king could ever assume titles that belong only to God. Turn to the next page. Jeremiah 23. What is the promised king called in verse 6? Yahweh is our righteousness. The Messiah is called Yahweh. Next page. Luke 2. Luke 2. Angels from heaven light up the night sky to announce baby Jesus' birth in the hills outside King David's royal city. When is the last time that happened for for any old monarch? Ever. Only for one who is both Christ and Savior, both King and God. When Jesus took the Pharisees to Psalm 110, he's saying, look at the scriptures. The Messiah is not just a man. He's not even just a godly man. The Messiah is the God-man. And of course, the massive implication that Jesus is making is that he is that one. 100% God. 100% man. True God of true God. Light from light. Very God of very gods. The son of God, the second person of the Godhead who, who assumed human flesh and frailty while losing none of his deity. Friends, this is the wonder of the Christmas story, isn't it? It's not merely that God loves us. Christmas is a story about love, but it is about a particular type of love. It's love that came to us. The great and glorious mystery that the Old Testament hinted at, but but that is wonderfully revealed in the New Testament is that God in Christ condescended to us because in our moral weakness and rebellion against Him, we could never ascend to Him. Jesus lived as a man. He lived as a a real human being. He had skin, just like you do. He he ate just like you do. He drank. He slept. He had pain. He got sick. He lived as a man, yet without any trace of sin. Where Adam and Israel and all its kings failed, Jesus, the man, The son of David triumphed. He obeyed in every way that you and I have not. In his great love, listen, in his great love, Jesus lived in a world under the curse, even while he himself was not ruined by the fall. As a man, Jesus represents us as the second and better Adam, as the true and better Israel, as the unique and better king. He alone is qualified to stand in our place before God. Jesus had to be a man to represent us. Beloved, He had to be God to forgive us. I know this is thick stuff, but don't tune out now. Our sin against God, our rebellion against God's rule, against His rightful authority over us, Our sin that's innate in every single one of us is infinite, eternal offense against God. Why? Our sin is infinitely and eternally offensive because it is sin against an infinite and eternal God. From a little white lie to cheating on your spouse. From disobeying your parents' kids to the sin of murder. Murder. All sin is infinitely heinous and deserves to be infinitely judged because it is sin against an infinitely holy God. Therefore, only an infinite being could pay that infinite price. As John Piper asks, how can one man in a matter of hours drain the cup of God's wrath that it would have taken an eternity to pour out on me. Because the man on the cross draining the cup of God's wrath for those three hours was indeed our infinitely great God. Friends, don't make the mistake the Pharisees made. Don't diminish the Christ of Christmas. Don't make Him something less then he reveals himself to be in his word. To be half right about Jesus is to be all wrong about him. When it comes to the gospel of Christ, friends, a half-truth masquerading as a a full truth is a non-truth. You must embrace all Christ reveals himself to be. Jesus is not merely a good teacher whose moral code is worth following. (laughs) <laughs> he's, he's not the divine Santa Claus figure who knows when you've been naughty or nice, so please be good for goodness sake. He's not your local therapist who comes to coach you through life's problems. Based on Jesus' own words, he's not left any of those options open to you. He claims to be the man who shares the throne with God himself the one who lived, who died, who rose again, who reigns at the right hand of the Father, who is coming again in glory. He lays claim to your life, friend, as the king, as your judge. And his essential message that he preached then and that he holds out in his word today is that if you'll turn, from your sin against God, that if you make a break with your sin and you will entrust yourself entirely to Him, this Jesus will forgive you. He will reconcile you to God completely so that as you trust Him, His victory over sin and death becomes your own. He'll transform your life. He'll make you into a new person one that you had no power to be on your own. He'll transform you from the inside out. And then one day when he splits the sky and returns again, he'll resurrect your dead body from the grave to live with God forever in a world of eternal joy and love. As C.S. Lewis famously said, (laughs) either Jesus is a deranged lunatic, either he's a lunatic for saying such things, Or he's a vile liar of the worst sort. Say what he said. For he really is the Lord. The only choice that Jesus left the Pharisees, the only choice that he leaves you today is one of complete rejection or complete acceptance of wholehearted unbelief or wholehearted trust in him as your king and your God. There is no middle ground. It's not enough to be half right about Jesus. You must embrace all he reveals himself to be. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice this morning that although You had every reason and every right to end Your creation project in the very, very beginning, although You had every right and reason to leave us alone in our sin, and leave us to the condemnation and the judgment we deserve for rebelling against You, our good and gracious King and Father, we rejoice this morning that in the fullness of time, you sent for your son. We thank you for his righteous life in our place. We rejoice this morning in his atoning death in our place. And in light of Psalm 110, we praise you this morning for his mighty resurrection from the grave and his installation as king at your right hand. Oh Lord Jesus, we look forward expectantly, focusing so much on your first coming, is designed to just set our hearts and hope on your second coming. So we ask you, Lord Jesus, until you come, make us faithful. Keep us to the end. But Lord Jesus, please do come quickly. Take us home, we pray. Bring us into all that you have prepared for us. We love you, Lord. We thank you for Christmas. In Jesus' name.